Good morning. I greet you in Jesus' name this morning. John 14, 19, the verse goes like this. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more, but ye see me, and because I live, ye shall live also. I have a question for you this morning as we consider that verse. And it's simply this. Do you have a life? We use that sometimes. We'll, you know, maybe sometimes in sarcasm, we'll say, that, that guy's got to get a life. Or we'll say, I don't have a life. You know, maybe everything's crumbling down around us, and, and we'll say that. Or we'll instruct someone to get a life, you know. And we somewhat know what we mean uh, when we say that, although I've never had anybody necessarily define to me exactly perhaps what they mean when they say that. But we do know a bit what that means. This verse says, because Jesus lives, we can have a life. We can. It was interesting to me, um, recently I happened upon an a article that ranked people's satisfaction with life. And these things always intrigue me, not because it matters much, just because I find it quite interesting. Um, you know, how people place themselves in the world. There was, the, the part that caught my eye, I guess, was, um, um, oh, let's back up a little bit. Uh, those of you that are around John Deere equipment and, and get John Deere magazines in your mailboxes probably have seen this little catchy uh, phrase recently or a little, little thing, a little epitaph that Deere likes to bandy about at this point. And that is, uh, anybody that said that money can't buy happiness never drove a deer. Um, in, implying that money can indeed buy happiness if it's spent on the right thing. Well, this, this little reading that I uh, came across said that life satisfaction will increase. This is what this, these people found. Life satisfaction will increase as income rises, but it peaks at 75 grand. Once people hit $75,000, happiness ceased to become better. They ceased to find more fulfillment in life. In fact, it maybe plateaued or went down a little after that, which makes some sense. Um, super rich people seldom are very happy. The pollsters also found out that uh, income wasn't the only determinant factor of a person's happiness. A pleasant state of being also dependent on one's physical health, his job satisfaction, his environment, his social connectivity, and his general outlook on life, among other things. Well, there's something that's sadly lacking from that list, and that's Jesus. Um, these people are trying to determine where I can find happiness in life, and they're making the mistake that the majority of humankind has made through the ages. And that is, they're trying to find it outside of life in Christ. And it will be an endless search and they'll never find the happiness they're looking for. This particular outfit also tried to determine who were the happiest people in this nation we live in. And they tried to take a state-by-state -state analysis of this and using some sophisticated computer algorithms to figure out where do the happiest people in the U.S. live? Which state do they exist? When you, when you take all these 
many different facets that bring us happiness and life. Where, where are these people? Did anybody want to guess where Minnesota was? Maybe you saw this stuff. Number one. Number two. So we're right up there. You, the people in Utah are happier. I, I was happy to find out. For some reason, they're happier. But we're number two. So we are some pretty happy people around here, you know? Um, Hawaii is number three, and Colorado is number four, and then it just kept on going down from there. Um, who wants to guess who the, the least happiest state in the union is? Anybody have any idea? West Virginia. West Virginia. <laughs> West Virginia. So based on that, Sister Bethany should have experienced a remarkable positive shift <laughs> in her overall satisfaction in life lately. How's that going for you, Sister? <laughs> All right. I found that very interesting. Um, and if, if we move up the list, number 49 was Alabama, number 48 was Kentucky, number 47 was Mississippi. Sorry, Jeff. What can I say? Um, but anyway, these things don't matter really, but it, it is quite interesting. Now, there's another thing that I also felt, uh, found quite telling and quite sobering. So remember, Utah had the happiest people, but it also has the number one rate of suicide in the nation. Bring this together for me, please. Didn't make much sense. They didn't enlarge on that, but it was the case. I'm going to suggest to you that Minnesota has plenty of unfulfilled people as well. I'm going to suggest that the problems we face here are common to men. And until the people of whatever state you live in find the Lord, they will not have a life. They just will not. I have chosen this morning to do a case study of a person who found life. A person that did not have a life, but found a life, and is very related to the resurrection story. This person is Mary Magdalene. If you turn to John 20, um, I'd like to read just a little out of John 20. Justin. Would you get me a drink, please? It's going to be a long morning if I don't have a little water up here, so I may as well just do it. You, the resurrection story is a very familiar story. And the first few verses of chapter 20 uh, talk about the familiar story of Mary Magdalene coming to this grave. And we know from other gospels she was with other women. She finds this grave empty. She runs and she tells Simon and the other disciple. And I think it's Luke tells us that when these people heard this story, it seemed like an idle tale to them. They didn't really believe it. So they run to the grave. They, they look into and lo and behold, what the women said were right. And uh, verse 10 says the disciples went, off, went away again to their own home. They were like, well, I guess we're going to go home. And we know that on their way home, Jesus met them and chatted with them a while. But I'd like to take up reading in verse 11. It says, but Mary stood without the sepulcher weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. And seeth two angels in white sitting, the one on the head, the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had said thus, she turned herself back. Thank you. 
And saw Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She supposing that it, it him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself, she saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had, he had spoken these things under her. Now I'd like for you to just notice verse 18. It says there that she told the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Now if we go back to our verse that I originally quoted to you, it says... The world does not see me, but you see me. And because you see me, you have a life. Mary says here, I saw the Lord. Mary had a life. Let's look at her a little bit. Let's look at Mary before she found Jesus. Mary had uh, a number of things that worked in her disfavor uh, that put her at a disadvantage with society. The first thing she had that was her disadvantage was that she was a woman. Now, that may strike you as odd, but um, it's, it's not unfamiliar to us that in the Old Testament, the women definitely had somewhat of an inferior role um, that they played. Just to give you a couple of examples, uh, in the Old Testament, under the Old Testament law, a woman could not initiate a divorce. A man could, a woman could not. If a woman decided to take out a vow and her husband... Or her father said, mm, not so fast, I don't think you should. Then she couldn't. That, that was the, the, the husband or the father determined whether she could make that vow, whatever that was, to the Lord. Also, women were not required to keep the feasts. Uh, they could, but they were not required to. All males were required to show up for three feasts every year. Women were not. In the Second Temple era... Um, after the captivity, we have set up what was called the Court of the Women. And that was the outermost court. They, they, they were removed the fathers from the temple itself. So you can see that being a woman was a unique spot in the Old Testament. Uh, I'm not going to comment much on that because most of it was uh, instigated by God, and I think there was good reason for it. I just will have to say I don't understand but they did, they did have a different role. Now, our uh, zealous um, uh, friends, the Pharisees and the scribes and so on, as uh, the world revolved through the 400 silent years, they, as they did with many other things, twisted and distorted and worked with Scripture to even make it a more pronounced um, subjection of women. And I'm going to give you a couple of examples of exactly where a woman would find themselves in the New Testament era. Here's one out of, um, I'm not sure whether it's the Mishnah or the Talmud. And if you remember, the Mishnah and the Talmud were the commentaries on the Torah. They, were, they explained how you should go about exercising the Torah. So they were kind of the man-made rules, you might say, that were probably a little overzealous sometimes. So it goes like this. Engage not in too much conversation with a woman... For as long as a man engages in too much conversation with a woman, he causes himself evil.
for he goes idle from the study of the Torah, so that his, his end will be that he will inherit hell. Interesting. Here's another. A woman did not have the right to be a public witness in a court case. Uh, Josephus tells us, Let not the testimony of women be admitted because of the levity and boldness of their sex. Okay. Here's a few more things. A woman could not be a teacher of children, neither could an unmarried man. A woman was not allowed to be taught by the, of the Torah publicly, despite the fact that it was indeed allowed in the Old Testament period. Women were not allowed to be educated in the same schools as men. The rabbis taught that women were intellectually inferior and incapable of studying the Torah. And women who were caught in immoral behavior were often ostracized from society, while men were largely left off the hook. So you get the picture. Um, not really pretty. Um, being a woman had its challenges. This does explain, however, some of the interesting interactions that Jesus had with women and how it, it uh, hit society sideways when he'd interact with women. Think about the time Mary sat at the feet of Jesus being instructed. That was not inside of societal norms. You didn't do that. Women, Martha was doing the women's part. She was making the meal. Mary... Not so much. She was being instructed from this Torah, which um, probably wasn't looked on very favorably. How about the woman caught in adultery? You know, we often talk about, where's the man? Where was he? Um, again, it, it's back to that um, uh, unfairness, you might say. And the uh, Samaritan lady at the well, um, how she was so caught off guard by Jesus sitting down and talking with her. And sure, she was a Samaritan. That was one part of it. But she was a woman. This just didn't happen. Rabbis did not sit down and talk with women. So Mary had this actually kind of against her. Um, she was a woman. She had some, she had some things that um, aren't nice because of that. Another thing was Mary was from this town called Magdala. Now, we don't know much about Magdala. It's only mentioned a time or two. In, uh, in the New Testament. We know that she's from there. The literal meaning of Magdala is the Tower of Fish. Now this town was uh, set right on the western edge of the Sea of Galilee. We have Capernaum, then we have Magdala, and then we have Tiberias. And they all sat right there on the western side of the uh, Sea of Galilee. And this, uh, because it was of its proximity, it was a place that was, uh, the economy was largely based on, uh, on fish. Uh, it was known for pickling fish, for salting fish, for drying fish. Fish was where it was at in Magdala. And there was a lot of, um, a lot of the economy hung on that trade. It's interesting that um, it is quite possible, I guess, that the fish that showed up at these different uh, miracles that Jesus performed, you remember it talks about the small fishes, the five loaves and the small fishes or whatever, um, that, that may have well came from, from Magdala. Could very well have come from Magdala. Because um, it was known for, for its um, marketing of fish. The Jewish Talmud would also indicate, uh, we don't get this from scripture, but it would indicate that Magdala also was known for a very unsavory reputation. Um, sexual promiscuity. 
harlotry practiced in this place. As a matter of fact, it is, um, I can't verify this, but um, the Talmud would also indicate that because of the abundance of sin in that town, it was eventually destroyed. So in a word, I don't know where the happiness rank was in Magdala. Uh, it seems to me, it, 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 would, it would seem that it was somewhat of a wealthy town, but as wealth goes, it also was an evil town um, and had a lot of problems. So this is where we find our woman again this morning, Mary. We find her from Magdala, which had somewhat of an unsavory reputation. Again, probably didn't help her a lot that she was, she was from this particular city. And then Mary had her third problem, which she's known for. This is what we know about Mary. If you say the word, this is what comes to people's mind. And that is that she was possessed of devils. Um, Luke 8.1 it says, And it came to pass that he went from city and village, preaching and showing the good tidings of the kingdom of God. Twelve were with him. And certain women, which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom he cast seven devils. And Joanna and Susanna and many others ministered unto him of their substance. All right? So there it says specifically, that's how you identify this woman. She had these seven devils. In Mark 16, 9, again, it talks about it, and this is in the context of the resurrection. It says, now when Jesus was, now when Jesus was risen early from the, the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he cast seven devils. This was the marker of this woman. Now, how would you like if that would be your marker? Um, you know, what if my epitaph was Dwight, out of whom Jesus cast seven devils? That kind of was the tag, the tagline that she lived with. Obviously, if this was the case, and it was, obviously, Mary knew what a life of bondage was all about. There's no doubt about it. We don't exactly know to what extent Mary was bound by these devils. Um, we do have a sense from other instances in the Bible that demon possession seemed to be uh, somewhat of a common problem. At least it wasn't unheard of. In, uh, in and about Galilee during those days. And we have a bit of a glimpse from different accounts just what demon possession did to a person. And probably the most pronounced one that we think of was the poor man of Gadara who lived in the tombs, ran around naked, and couldn't be bound with chains. Lived a horrible life. And people were scared of him, dead scared of him. And just left him alone, just left him out there in the tomb and and uh, didn't want to have anything to do with them. We know that other places it talks about uh, people with devils being mute or blind or different issues that they had. And some express somewhat uh, epileptic type symptoms. So how this expressed itself in Mary, we're left to guess. We don't know. But I have a sneaking feeling that um, she was known for her problem. Uh, it seems that she was. So, Mary had three problems. She's a woman, she's from Magdala, she's bound by devils. She does not have an unfair advantage at all. She does not have a life. That's where we find this poor lady. So what happens when she meets Jesus? Well, there again, we don't have that account necessarily spelled out to us, just exactly how that meeting took place, where it took place. A lot of the details are just gone. 
So we're left to guess, and guessing is probably not a good thing. But we can deduct a couple of things that happened from finding Jesus and in, because of that, actually finding a life, I would say. All right, so the first thing that we can surely deduce is that Mary was released from this life of bondage, um, this, this devil possession, whatever it was, she was released from that. Imagine how she may have been treated by society. I have a feeling that if she was known for this issue, um, she was probably scuttled to the sides of the streets and to the, um, uh, probably when, you know, parents and children walked past Mary, uh, they probably eased over a little bit, um, probably whispered in their child's ear, yeah, that's the lady with the devils there, you know, just kind of, kind of leave her alone, let's, let's not get too close. Um, I think it's probably probable that she had mental issues, perhaps, um, suffered perhaps mentally, physically, from this, from this state, this uh, life that she had. Whatever the case was, I think it's simple, simply uh, appropriate to say that her quality of life was probably greatly wanting. I think that's safe to say. It didn't matter whether she lived in Magdala or where she lived. She was lacking quality of life. But somehow she encounters Jesus. And somehow seven devils meet their Waterloo and are cast out. I can only imagine the rejoicing, the freedom, and the new life that Mary must have experienced because of this particular event. Is there a lesson we can learn from this? Well... Mary had to meet Jesus to be free. We know that Jesus didn't care about stigma. He was, willing to, he was willing to help Mary out in her problem. I believe Jesus saw her potential. And Jesus was able to deal with seven devils. Praise the Lord for that. But you know, as much as we want to think of ourselves as different, there's not a lot of difference. Now, perhaps we're not bonafide, demon-possessed people. Maybe we never were, hopefully we weren't. And in the sense that we get the picture here in the Gospels of demon-possessed people. But at the end of the day, the book of Romans still says that all have sinned. Every last one of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Paul says later in the book of Romans, he says, For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and it slew me. Now we can all identify with that, can't we? Uh, we all know what that's like to live a life where sin has taken occasion, deceiving us and slaying us. But, Paul also says in the book of the Romans, but if the spirit of him who raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit which dwelleth in you. Folks, at some point, at some point, we all have to meet Jesus, and we have to get rid of those devils that are haunting us, whatever they are, that sin problem that we have. There's many attempts in today's world, I'll remind you, of people trying to find freedom from the symptom of sin without finding freedom from sin itself. And it's a tedious work. Jesus did not find clothes for that man in Gadara. He didn't do that. He didn't say, come on, let's find you a house, let's find you some clothes, let's, let's, let's patch you up a little bit here. He didn't. 
He got rid of those legions of devils that was haunting that man. When that happened, the clothes went on automatically. And the man was sitting there in his right mind. I want to encourage us. Don't deal with symptoms. Don't do it. Deal with the problem. And the problem is always sin. And remember this. There are no sins too big for Jesus. He can cast out seven. He can cast out legions. He can do that. He can... He can take care of your problem too, whatever it is. Remember that. So today, introspect. Do I have a stronghold in my life that I cannot get rid of? Let me point you to Jesus. Let me point you to what he did for Mary. I encourage you to find Jesus and find release from that. Paul in the book of Ephesians puts it like this. He says, do not give place to the devil. That word place could be better interpreted a spot. Do not give a spot to the devil. Don't let him get a foothold. Do not allow him one tiny part of your life. You know, some of us are super sensitive to spots. Others, not so much. But um, some of us don't like to eat bananas with spots. Some of us don't like cars with spots. And in the world we live in, there is some latitude for acceptance of spots. Right now, it's fairly difficult to run a spotless car on gravel roads in Minnesota. That's not going to happen. And that's okay in, in, in today's world, in the, in the material world, I should say. But you know, so many times we get this mixed up. We'll accept a spot in our spiritual life, but we want a spotless car, Okay. We've got to get that turned around. We have to accept a few spots in the material world, but please, let's live a spotless life. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the question is this. We can continue to earn a wage of sin, or you can choose to receive that gift. I beg you to receive the gift this morning. Another thing here that um, resulted from Mary finding a life, she found joy and satisfaction in serving in inconspicuous ways. Now, I read to you those few verses out of Luke 8, and I'm going to read just a little bit of it again. It talks about how there was these certain women, and it said um, Mary Magdalene, along with Joanna and Susanna, and many others, it says, minister unto Jesus with their substance. Well, that's what it says it did. It doesn't give any details beyond that. All we know is that they in some way ministered. And it seems like it was rather extensive because it says of their substance. Okay? Now, I don't know anything about Joanna and Susanna beyond this. And I don't know who the many others were. We have a little bit of a commentary on Mary Magdalene. But the spotlight here was on Jesus and his twelve as they were preaching. But we have these women that were ministering to their needs. I've got a question for you. Can somebody tell me who made this, or tell me what quote I'm reading here, who, who said this? Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Very popular quote. Who said that? John Kennedy. John Kennedy, yeah. Did he really say that, Cleo? Do you think he did? Okay, he said it. Do you think that he dreamed that up himself, is maybe the way I should say it. 
Well, we don't, we don't know that for sure. But it's highly likely that his speechwriter, Ted Sorensen, came up with that. Highly likely. Now, Ted, he was very loyal to uh, Kennedy, and he would not reveal that secret, even though he was pressed later on. And he said, nobody needs to know that, which is sort of a giveaway that he probably did. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, right away, our mind goes to Kennedy. When really, it was Ted Sorensen who was ministering to Kennedy that should actually get the credit, right? Well, maybe, maybe not. I guess the point I'm trying to make is that somebody has to take up the behind-the-scenes work so that the real work can happen. And there is nothing inferior about that at all. Somebody had to minister to Jesus and his disciples um, material needs. And these, these, these women did it. And they did the job well. Mary saw her Lord... She saw an opportunity to fill a spot that needed to be filled, and she did it. There's a real temptation for all of us to want the spotlight and loathe the petty jobs. Don't go there. We need our jobs, whatever they, they may be. And I'll point out once again, Mary just wasn't raising funds or organizing fundraisers. She was ministering from her substance. Whatever that meant, it was coming from her. I think that speaks much of Mary. Matthew 10, 41 says this, He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. He that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones, or one of these very least, a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, or because he is a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. You know what that means? That means today Justin has as much in this topic as I do, because he got me a cup of cold water, so I could get through the thing, and so you could hear it. And he will in no wise lose his reward. In other words, don't count the petty things as petty things. They're not petty. They're very vital. The Hebrew writer says this, God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. The RSV puts it this way, God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love you have showed for his sake in serving the saints, as you still do. Folks, I want to encourage you today, find joy and satisfaction in serving in very inconspicuous ways, and you will be blessed. You will be. And I'm sure you found that to be the case in your life. Another result from Mary finding the Lord is that she learned to express loyalty in someone else's bitterest hour of trial. She found joy in investing in the lives of others. And we, we get this from the scene of the cross. In Matthew 27:55. it says, And many women were there beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. There again, ministering unto him. Among which was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's children. Okay? So they're at the cross, and it says they're ministering unto Jesus. At this point, as you all know, the disciples were a basket case. Judas had already committed suicide. Peter had denied his Lord. The other ones just were flung to the four winds. 
And there was not much of a support group left for Jesus. But we find Mary and a few women. It's interesting for me to note that it says, the Bible says they were ministering unto him. But what did they do? How did they minister? What did they do? Did they bring him off the cross? They didn't bring him off the cross. Did they um, give him painkiller? No, didn't do that either. What did they do? They were simply there. They were there. That's it. Bottom line. The Bible calls that ministry. There are times in life when we will have opportunity to come alongside someone who is suffering the anguish of some of life's bitterest blows. Okay? Maybe somebody lost somebody, a loved one, to death. Maybe someone is facing a besetting temptation. Maybe whatever. You fill in the blank. All that person needs at that point is to be ministered to. That's it. And that ministering will just be simply a listening ear, a helpful hand, a prayer, whatever that is. Walking with people in their hours of trial will not necessarily solve their problems, but it is still a part of bearing another's burden. Paul had a sad testimony in 2 Timothy. He said, at my first answer, at my first trial, no man, not one, stood with me. What a poor state of affairs. There's Paul. And it seems like he's almost, he's almost um, decrying the fact. But he goes, the Lord stood with me. He goes, all men forsook me, and I pray God that they lay it not to their charge. The Hebrew writer again admonishes us. It says, remember, remember those that are in bonds as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. You know, there's this little um, saying that we bandy about sometimes. It says, if you are not part of the problem and you are not part of the solution, then you should just keep your nose out of it. Now, when you first hear that, it sounds great. It sounds right. And I will say that there is a times, there are many times that that can be applied well. All right? But sometimes we use that as an excuse to stay out of a problem that we should actually get in there and get a little dirty, okay? And we should actually help to bear someone's burden. Again, I ask you, did Mary solve any problems here? Was she a part of this problem? Did you, was she the one that put Jesus on that cross? Well, in a way she was. We all were. But in the real literal point I'm trying to make, she was not. If she had her way, Jesus would have never been on that cross. Okay, So she was not part of the problem. Did she have a solution? She had no solution. She couldn't do a thing. But it says she ministered. The Bible calls Barnabas the son of consolation. What's that mean? He did some sort of work of consoling. Um, and I think it speaks for itself. There are plenty of people today who are simply looking for godly support and interest in their lives as they bear under the heat of the day. At the end of the day, if you go in there and bear that person's burden, the load may not change. It just might not. But it will seem lighter. It just will. Do you ever notice whenever you're traveling and you're 
You know, you got a thousand mile trip. We do those occasionally. Some of the rest of you do too. And it's just long and it's just tiring. And I-90 doesn't change anywhere. And it, you're just sick of it. You ring up somebody and you talk for an hour and you're like, where'd that hour go? It just went. Just went. What changed? Well, did the miles get shorter? Didn't get shorter, did they? What changed was that somebody was ministering to your need. And that ministry was just simply chatting with you. And your need, your need at that point was mighty minimal, I will admit. But I'm making the point that just talking, just being there, ministers to the need. All right. Let's wrap this up by looking at a few rewards that Jesus or that Mary received on Resurrection Day from her finding a life in Jesus. One of the rewards was she was the first to find the empty tomb. You know, it talks about how she got up early. She took these spices. She took her friends. It's it's dark, and they're chatting. How are we going to roll away the stone? They don't know, but uh, they're going anyway. They're going to figure this out. And the reward was they were the absolute first to see what happened. The, the, the best news that ever happened to the world. They, uh, they were there to bear testimony for that. I'll admit, had it been me, I bet I'd have been tempted just to roll up in bed and just sleep in that morning. I bet I would have uh, after that hard weekend. Uh, but they did not. And she had that honor of discovering this news. I will just say this. Let's enjoy the small, maybe somewhat insignificant blessings that God sends our way whenever we find a life in him. The Hebrew writer says, God is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And Mary is indeed an example of someone that diligently sought Jesus, and she was rewarded for it. Reward number two, she was the first to speak to Jesus after the resurrection. So she saw the empty grave. She's the first one to... um, to speak to Jesus. The secret to that uh, conversation may well lie in verses uh, 10 and 11. So the disciples, they, they hike off home. But it says in verse 11, Mary stood without the sepulcher weeping. Just stood there. And she thought, well, I'll look in this thing one more time. And so she did. She looked in there. Then she sees these angels. And I won't uh, recount the rest of it. But eventually she turns around and she has this conversation with the Lord. The point I want to make is this. Sometimes conversing with Jesus will mean lingering a little longer. Uh, Jesus may not choose to speak with you just instantly. But sometimes lingering in that garden just a little longer is what it takes. Jesus has always promised to hear and talk to us, but he also warned us that we must seek to find. Sometimes we're just a little too anxious to run home like the disciples instead of waiting and weeping in the garden. Jesus may speak to you in some of the most unthought of times and ways. Just be sensitive to the way he may choose to speak to you. And reward number three. She had the honor of verifying the resurrections of the disciples. Now just think about how inverse that was. So remember, women... They can't testify in court because of the boldness and levity of their sex. But Jesus says, now I want you to go and you tell Peter, well, my disciples, my brethren, he calls them, you go tell them that uh, you've seen me and that I'm, I'm going to my God and your God and on and on he goes. Can you imagine how backward that seemed um, to Mary? He, she had the honor as a, woman, as a woman to bear this good news 
to the twelve that had been busy preaching the kingdom of God for three years with Jesus. Part of the reward of being a Christian is the opportunity and privilege to tell the things that Jesus has done for us and spoken to us. Sometimes we look at that, look at that as an assignment. It's really a reward. It really is. Just to say to somebody, believer or unbeliever, this is what Jesus has done for me, can be a real pick-me-up. Well, the words that we started out with ring through today. Yet a little while, the world seeth me no more, but ye see me, and because I live, ye shall live also. Folks, we serve the same Jesus Mary did. Uh, We have some issues that are common with Mary. We really do. But we serve that same Jesus, that same resurrected Lord. We can enjoy the same rewards as she did. And I would like to challenge us with that this morning. Do you have a life? Do you? If you don't, that's your problem. You can have a life this morning. You really can. I'm going to close with, uh, with this verse, Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Praise the Lord.